welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. In our conversation series, we delve a little deeper to hear directly from artists, and for this episode, I spoke with Fiona Abacare. Fiona works across sculpture and interiors. She always begins her work from a particular site or context, whether it be the gallery, a shopfront window, or the golden age of Hollywood, just to name a few. From here, she explores the cultural and personal associations and histories we have with various sites, objects, and historical periods, creating works that blend art, design, architecture, film, and fashion. Fiona and I talk about how she became interested in the crossovers between contemporary art and interior design, as well as her interest in domestic decor, garments, and display. We discuss how she came to art, how she works with different materials and sites, and how she explores the shabby chic aesthetic in her current exhibition, Rose Moon, currently showing at West Space in Melbourne. So I'd like to know about the path you've been down to get where you are today. And were you always interested in art growing up? So I was probably around seven or eight when I possibly became a little bit more aware that I was a bit more serious or just interested in drawing and making compared to my other friends in school. And was there any formative experience when you were growing up? Like you just, you studied art or I guess I'm just curious as to how, what makes a person decide to go to art school after school? Oh no, I I just assume that other artists are like this in that sense that they just either feel that they're good at it, really. Mm. You just know. Well, yeah, I think you do, essentially. I mean, I think I became competitive at making art when I was at school and so I was always the person that got the gigs to do the poster or, you know, I (laughs) always felt like I just propelled myself in that area and chose to do a lot compared to other children, I guess. And, And I think when you come across art books when you're very young, and then how that affects you. And I think, you know, surrealism in particular was something that found very relatable. I don't know. My mother will say that the decision to go to art school was possibly made, you know, definitely in primary school. And then where does that interest in interior design and decor come from? Well, I think the surrealists used performance and costume quite clearly in their delivery of their imagery and so I think initially it stemmed from I guess being interested in surrealism so it kind of felt to me quite a natural inclusion Mm. in art. Then I guess later and I can't really tell you what point in time it became clear to me that women's roles in and around modernism and interior design and fashion and how women gained kind of agency through, I guess, their development of their appearance and the design aesthetics that were coming out through modernism just seemed to lend itself towards being interested in those arenas of production. So I was curious if maybe it had anything to do with your childhood or something, just because I have a friend who's a set designer I was asking them about, like, you know, how did you become a set designer? Mm. And at first she thought it just kind of happened in a way. And then she realised that the main kind of bonding experience between her and her mum growing up was home yeah. decor and moving stuff around and yeah. garments and things. Absolutely. My family background, which I guess underpins a lot of the interests that I actually have. And my parents actually had my brother and I when they were quite young and they were in their early I think just turned 20 and 21 and my mother was always interested in interior design. My father was a 
entrepreneur of all sorts and he was a photographer when they were starting out and a developer and they ran so many different businesses. But the home was definitely built when I was born and it was an extraordinary early 70s representation of interior design at the time and a lot of Hollywood Regency and very distinct colour palette and my mother was quite glamorous and my grandmother was also a dressmaker and a pattern maker and so there's a lot of family influences in regards to yeah, my experiences growing up in and around, I guess, aesthetics and how my mother presented herself, how the house presented itself to me when I was young. And in your early practice, did you immediately see that intersection between contemporary art and design coming out? No, I don't think so. I think it was just an interest in making that developed. I think I've developed an aesthetic or a a way in which things are pushed through a conduit of mediums and, you know, I think there's always, you know, um, I guess everyone has their distinct look of how they end up producing work. But I don't think in the early, well, I guess also too, it's just making art at school in the 1980s. I just, you know, it's such a broad aesthetic range of art influences and, yeah, I don't think my work was particularly pretty back then by any means. It was probably <laughs> garish. I'm sure it wasn't that bad. <laughs> it, was, it was, yeah, I would say it was terrible actually. It was, yeah, yeah. Everyone thinks that about their old stuff though. <laughs> but you're like, no, mine was really bad. Yeah, no, I, I think I was in that year 12 top VCA um, exhibition and, you know, mm. I think it was, yeah, it was pretty gross. something interesting about your practice that we were sort of just talking about before the interview is that you also work full-time and you have worked in a technical capacity alongside other famous artists how do you find doing that work interacts with having your own art practice I feel that it's really actually been a really important part of pursuing this career after Rose Moon opened, what was it just over a week ago now, I started back at work on Monday and, you know, I work as a mould maker for um, a company, an animatronics company, and and really happy to be back in making decisions about, yeah, just problem solving and medium problem solving. And, you know, I think there's doing that on a full-time capacity and, and then taking block periods off to make artwork. It's just like your brain is always thinking and I'm always excited about the possibilities of how to use different materials in different ways and processes and linking that into project sites and contexts and subjects. And so it's, you know, I don't think without doing that work, I think the work would have really struggled for many years to appear the way it's appeared if I didn't have this other skill base because I think when I went to art school I think that was a complete frustration that I wanted to make things look like sand or you know there was just this adventure of of mediums and I think I rarely kind of rarely produce the same process twice I mean I think there's a few key mediums that I quite like like a particular stone product but generally it's about the chase of developing something new There was a curator I was recently talking with that about and they were sort of lamenting the fact that a lot of, especially young artists, have like brilliant ideas but don't, aren't embarking on the technical skills to realise those ideas. I guess it's for you, you've kind of always had a win-win because you now do have the technical skills to realise your ideas. 
Yeah, I think it's taken a really long time. And I think, you know, I think anyone who is in the, I guess, employed in the area that I'm employed, there's not many of us, but I don't know, you can just never get confident with it. It's because it's, you know, a lot of products are temperature dependent and producing work, whether it be summer or winter or spring, it's humidity levels, it's it's a shape, it's a volume, it's it becomes, you know, a, a complete battle with chemicals and time and projection of time and understanding all the things that you've done wrong in the past and utilising that knowledge to then hopefully make sure that it works this time around. But it's just, unless you're doing manufacturing and I guess you know, the problem with artists embarking on whole lots of new um, ideas and mediums that they're not really used to. It's people are expecting artists to produce works on level with manufacturing and it's, well, manufacturing companies initially in design, they all have their R&D and they all have so much money behind them and it, it's just, um, it's inconceivable to think that artists can achieve those levels yeah. and it becomes, you know... I have very strong opinions about productions and costs and expectations. It's, I think it's difficult for climate in this, particularly in Australia anyway, to to keep that turnaround of artists just completely producing on that level when perhaps, and most, yeah, I mean, most artists would feel like this, that there's, there's just really, what's just not viable? And so there's a really big question about how to make artist practice just sustainable. And it's a big issue for, for people to survive in, I guess, a country that's it's increasing in cost of living mm-hmm. and and the amount of money that has to that it takes for artists to pull off production shows or, of, yeah. or not just production shows, just shows, period. And it's, it doesn't really specify mediums, it's just just generally. Let's change tack a little bit and talk about the role that context and sight plays in your work Mm -hmm. because that's probably the most pivotal component in a way. Often the decisions you make when you're creating a work are always in relation to a certain sight or a certain context. How did that process start? I think... To be fair, I had two different art school training experiences. So I went to VCA straight from year 12 and that was a really exciting and interesting experience to have. It was it was incredibly bonding. There was only four or five other students in each year and we pretty much lived and worked in the VCA at that time. We had a kitchen, we all cooked for each other on a Wednesday and, and it was wonderful. But there was a sense of, oh, there's your studio, get to it. And you want to be an artist and that's, it was pretty tough. And then I did honours at RMIT in sculpture in 1999, I think. And I was encouraged by my friend Terry Bird, who I met in the foundry when I left art school at VCA. I went to work at Artworks in Bronze as a mould maker, got trained in that area. And at RMIT, yeah, their their collaborative-based emphasis and site-based emphasis, I guess, had a yeah, quite a big impact on me, as well as being interested in particular artists around that time, like Louise Lawler and Barbara Bloom and, yeah, Marcel Bourgeois. So it was just, yeah, it was a combination of those two experiences that led to the type of practice I have, I think. Do you find that they give you creative inspiration? Like, do you need the site and the context to get... Like, I guess what comes first in a way. Yeah, I think it's, well, it's definitely the site because as 
Patrice Sharkey, who's the curator of um, Rosemoon for West Space and was the director at the time when I was asked to be involved in this exhibition. Um, we weren't quite sure whether West Space was actually going to be at that site anymore. Mm. And I think when she told me, well, we're not going to be here anymore, I kind of <laughs> said, well, I'm sorry, we're going to have to put the project on hold. <laughs> like standing like a complete prima donna. But it was just that I just don't make work in isolation. It's yeah. just unless there's there's something to work with it, yeah, I'm not. It's a, well, I guess it's an exhibition practice. It's, it hasn't taken me a long time to figure that out, but it has taken a while. Where it's, I'm not a studio-based artist that goes to the studio every day and does continuous making. I do projects. So, how does the process work? First of all, do you I, do you often kind of go, "This is the site that I'm given," or "This is the site that I want." And then from there, how do you decide what objects you're going to create for that site or in relation to? Well, when it comes to galleries, so Sarah Scout's been representing me since 2010. The first project I did for Sarah Scout was for the art fair and that was Artist Actor, Artist Latour project. And, you know, that was all about the context of the art fair. So that project developed for the art fair and it was designed for the art fair audience and my feelings around what that premise was and how it operates and my feelings about it when I was a young person. And then with Louvre, a project I did called Fit Out for the ladies of Louvre that were in Collins Street, that was a window display that was distinctly looking at the history and the site of that fashion house and um, and how it's been operating and, and how they presented themselves on the street And so it was making a bit more democratic, really, in in regards to removing their gauze windows and creating a a double interior for the walker-by on the street because they kind of, I guess, enjoyed the fact that only certain clientele or maybe by appointment could enter the store. And it was also about honouring them as a house and their history. So the site dictates the approach, dictates the medium, the subject and the starting point, really. Does that take a lot of research on your part? I guess it's just about creating a space for ideas to exist. And when the space is there for you to work with, then it's... I feel I work on the the parameters of the research development for Rosemoon. I think I was working pretty hard on that framework for, I don't know, almost two years. And then production was six months. You have this sort of modernist notion where the interior space that your created art objects are within are also part of the artwork as well. It's this kind of totalizing experience. Mm-hmm. Can you talk through how you came to that position? Well, I think because I I did study masters in interior design and it was certainly looking at the material relationships between certain contexts and sites and the presentations of mediums and it really took me into histories of 19th century display and when there was a complete beginning, I guess, of how installation was used in a commercial sphere in terms of the beginning of French kind of display and consumerist culture. I think the lead into modernism and Adolf Loos and the interior and the complete artwork, so to speak, and the extremity of what was happening around the 1920s with those concepts, I think was really interesting. And also to there's that relationship on the other hand of being a maker 
and being interested in making. I guess when you're talking about window merchandising and installation and sort of how there is that link between almost like the kind of corporate presentation of products and then the gallery setting, you, you're not like dismayed by that relationship. You're kind of excited by all the different associations. Yeah, I feel like I'm just really developing ideas of what's existing. I'm just pulling these cultural moments or these social histories together and representing them in medium specific way. And that's, I don't know how else to describe it, but I think that's, I think that is what I'm doing. But it's also too that all those relationships are are there from all the interior design movements that I've been looking at, whether it be the the Hollywood Regency or the Georgian periods, but it's, it's looking at, at media. It's looking at how those those sites come to be, whether they're in print form, whether they come from film and also too the languages of, I mean, display has always been such a big interest of mine from the very beginning and the presentation of sculpture and how sculpture works and what are you looking at? Are you looking at the pedestal? And like how those framing devices operate across many different contexts and, you know, to me, they're never in isolation. And a lot of the sites and spaces you work within kind of have a domestic bent. Uh, and I guess maybe more recently, they've had a particularly domestic bent. And they're known as being traditionally feminine spaces. Was that a purposeful move on your part? Well, I think that's the problem with modernism, isn't it? It's just like how they tended to look at and frame surfaces and fashion in, in interior design. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think powerfully during that time, retrospectively, women probably gained agency through utilising those formats mm. exceptionally well. And yeah, I'm really interested in women's roles and narrative and performance and how we're all affected by these notions. I wanted to talk about how you appropriate certain objects and kind of these, I guess, cultural tropes in your work. And one that particularly comes to mind is a 2014 work called Trench, which is this trench coat that sort of floats against a wall, but without the presence of a body holding it up. And it has its arm raised, sort of like it's holding a pistol or something. And it's very, you know, film noir-like and it feels quite mysterious and but it's also such a loaded symbol because you just see that stance and that object and you immediately just can draw upon the mainstream narrative that is associated with that garment and the way that it's positioned. I'm curious, I guess, first of all, as to how that work came about. We can totally blame this on Rosemary Ford, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rosemary curated a, a show for Sarah Scout Presents. And the curatorial framing for Rosemary's show, you know, was, it was broad and it was curious and it was intriguing. And and so the trench was something I was really interested in that came off the back of a project I did for Sarah Scout the year before called Depose, where I designed a version of a trench. And, and I think I was a little influenced at the time by Meryl Streep in Kramer versus Kramer and her famous mm. beige trench coat and, you know, that window scene where she's looking at her son through the window and she's quite scary. And, and also just researched the history of the trench. And so it wasn't necessarily a, an interest in the film noir kind of relationship to the trench. It was yeah. more or less trying to figure out the reconfiguration of, of it. And Essentially, I think there was just a pose I was interested in. And sometimes it just comes from being interested in a pose. And so it was a pose of a female up against a wall with one knee or one leg up against the wall 
and her hands in her pockets. And I think that pose, I don't know whether it's an early 1990s pose that I'm interested in, but for some reason I think I feel like I've mined it from that period. And the trench design itself has been something I feel like I wanted to wear. So when you have these objects and there's so many stories and associations with them and that they're mass cultural, but they're also really, they can be really personal at the same time. Are you interested in the circulation of those stories? Yes, I think there's, I don't want to use the word trend in relationship to my practice, there's a trend in my work um, (laughs) that um, where I'm actually interested in either objects or fashion or, or even in this last case with Rose Moon with looking at Grateful Dead, it's actually looking at things that have reached an iconic level of appreciation globally. Mm -hmm. And I think that even started out when I was very young looking at Ladro figurines and and how um, universal they actually were and they crossed every culture and nation and, Mm -hmm. and represented themselves so broadly. And this is, yeah, my interest in the shabby chic aesthetic, it's the interest in Grateful Dead and, you know, particularly, and even with the trench because of people's associations with the trench. Some of the periods that you look at, for instance, the Americano exhibition looked at the golden age of Hollywood. Is there a sense of nostalgia there for you? Yeah, I think there is a little bit of nostalgia and I think it's more about understanding my environment. So, you know, the shabby chic aesthetic you know, it's a big part of the peninsula as I was leaving when I turned 18. It was kind of rocking it in a big way as I kept going back to visit. And, but, you know, it was, it's actually in every coastal and rural town in Australia, I think it's, it's absorbed everywhere in this country as, as uh, along with other countries. It's not just our country, which has mm. taken on it with such ferocity. And I think, Quite frankly, the films of the 30s and 40s utilised objects and decor and sculpture in a really particular way. And I think sculpture really spoke to me through those films. And so I guess talking about Rose Moon specifically, when you first walk into Rose Moon, there is this giant wheel. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? And I guess the subtext of that is, is it a Deschampian kind of thing? Yeah, well... Essentially, it is a Deschampian kind of thing. And I think I was really interested in the movement in terms of how they adopted key frameworks of 20th century artists and hence how Janet Sobel came along with that research in relationship to the fact that drip paintings and people adopting those home techniques to fashion art in their own spaces became of interest. And I think the wheel and also too just the symbolism of this wagon wheel, when I kind of started looking into it, you know, I think there's plenty of people that have come to me, oh, it's, you know, it's in Harry Met Sally. And I say, yes, it is in Harry Met Sally. But it's kind of, um, it's a symbol symbol that's, I don't know, I think I kind of was counting almost like 30 different uses for barn doors. Like they're just, I mean, not barn doors, um, for wagon wheels. They're just everywhere and they're utilised everywhere and in so many different ways. You know, chandeliers, um, trophies, they're just gates to houses. It's a it's a strange thing and it's a strange thing how they've also been whitewashed and painted to the degree that they have. And then it just felt right to put it in on a coffee table. And the show also looks at the idea of the home decorator. What did you want to unpack about that? 
Well, I think what's really wonderful about the movement, this interior design movement, is its origins and its origins of um, what actually, as much as Rachel Ashwell, who was British born, came out to the States and probably had patented the coin probably in 1991, I think. But in terms of San Francisco along the West Coast, there was, it was already happening, this kind of, just based out of, I guess, financial need, really, people utilising secondhand furniture and doing them up and employing craft techniques and borrowed from, you know, Swedish painted furniture and redoing things and it was opposing the plastic movement at the time in that region and, you know, environmental movements. And but it was just really about craft and it was just, I really liked how this movement really focused on art. Mm. And it's like, well, it's, yeah, the, the homeowner and employing artistic motivation and looking at how craft is utilised in art and that crossover, which really interested me. And do you find, how do you kind of deal with the fact that it has this kind of such a sincere beginning as to how the shabby chic aesthetic started and now it's something that people buy in a way that doesn't have any connection to why it was originally designed in that way in the first place? Yeah, I think there was uh, there was an exhibition in Germany that looked at, I think it was a, a video demonstration of uh, Indian factory workers making distressed furniture and it just took you through the whole process and the whole DIY movement in terms of replicating finishes and whatnot. And it's really even hard to find authentic adapted pieces of furniture that you feel like haven't been mass produced. So yes, and it's kind of, maybe the show is about producing that on another high art level. Yeah, I don't know whether it's really about stating a problem with where it's got to as opposed to it's here and where did it come from and then I guess showcasing and revealing the artists that may have influenced it. When you've had a two-decade-long practice and... It's like crazy. with a walking stick or something. I, I, I know. I, I knew you were going to say something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, but nice. Nice th- to know that's that I'm predictable when we've only just met. But, you know, I mean, you have had a, a long practice and I mean, you, you can you. make a walking stick joke when we're saying like four decades and five decades. Yeah, decade. yeah, no, I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it blends design and, and mm. cinema and feminine aesthetics and then you're interested in this history of objects and then this interest in materiality. I'm curious, because the explorations have kind of seemed so consistent to me, what do you feel like you've learned in the last 20 years? Yeah, things feel really different right now, actually. And I don't think in the past I'd ever really like to discuss the work like I'm discussing it with you as we speak. And I think there's, particularly with this show, there's just, there was just a really, there was a lot of enjoyment in kind of that battle with time and space and less emotional, even though it may appear on the outset that this has kind of come from my hometown, mm. essentially. Yeah, I just it, something this feels like it's not as complicated for me emotionally. And I don't know why that is the case or whether there's a sense that I'm here now and it's okay. It's okay to keep going or something. Is that like a confidence thing or 
understanding yourself and your practice better? Yeah, I think there's, it's taken a long time to possibly to, I mean, it seems like quite crazy considering that I, you know, have another role as a, in the technical field. And I think that's probably why I did choose that parallel career path was because I didn't want to struggle on that side of the front with the practice. I wanted to struggle with the framing, the conceptual arena, and I wanted to be all over the material development so it didn't appear. And I always talk about art like this, like I didn't. it doesn't appear like it's a heartache and that's kind of sometimes how I read work when you kind of see the arduous activities of the making and the pain, <laughs> <laughs> the development of the work. <laughs> and, um, I'm constantly trying very hard to remove that from the audience's experience. And that was Fiona Abacare discussing her practice and most recent exhibition, Rose Moon, currently showing at West Space in Melbourne. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes as well as check in with Art Guide Online or pick up a copy of the print edition to keep up to date with art-related news, articles and features from around Australia.